I want to invite you to take your Bible uh, with me and open to the book of Romans for a few moments. We're going to look in Romans chapter 12 today. If you were in our adult Bible study this morning at 930, you got the setup for this because Mike's been teaching in Romans. And uh, today I want to just look at this one chapter, Romans chapter 12. And I really want the text to just guide us today as we walk through the Word together. We've been talking about better together. And the book of Romans, it it could be divided into into two halves. Uh, The easiest way to to cut the book of Romans in half to understand it is to take chapters 1 through 11 and, and say this is what we believe. Chapters 1 through 11 is what we believe. And then chapters 12... Uh, through 16 to the end is how we behave. And so if you want to understand the book of Romans, you have what we believe and then how we behave. And I thought of it like this. Actually, this morning I was thinking about this. And if you can imagine Paul uh, getting into a boat and for 11 chapters, he is just filling a sack full of rocks of theology, incredible statements of theology that he unpacks and imparts into the church in the first 11 chapters. He talks about things like the sinfulness of mankind. He talks about forgiveness of sin through Christ. He talks about freedom from sin's grasp in our lives. He talks about the nation of Israel, their past, their present, and their future. And he's just loading this sack full of rocks of theology. And then he pushes out into the middle of the waters and he takes this giant sack of truth and he drops it in the water. And it begins to ripple out into our lives. And when that rock, that sack of rocks hits the water, It splashes with a word, therefore. In other words, Paul opens Romans chapter 12 by saying everything that I've talked about, the way that we believe, now fleshes out in how we behave. And he begins Romans chapter 12 verse 1 with a word, therefore. And I want us today to take a look at how we flesh out this faith together. Here's what it says in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve What God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's what I want you to get today, that God wants us to get somewhere together. We are better together, but we have to get there together. Can we just say this? Say, together we get there. It starts with a personal relationship with Christ. And there's three relationships that Paul emphasizes emphasizes in this 12th chapter. The first one is a relationship with God. The second one is the relationship with the body of Christ, other believers. And the third is the relationship with unbelievers, with a lost world. 
And what I want you to see today, if you can get this in your mind's eye, is that he takes all of this theological truth, all that we believe in God's word, and then he, he drops into the waters of our lives, and it begins with a relationship with God. We have to be together with God. And when we get that right, it ripples out together. To get there, we get to a relationship with the body of Christ. And there's more that God has for us than that. But to get there, we have to get together with the body of Christ. And then it goes into a relationship with unbelievers. Now, I just want to mention the first and the last of those relationships today. I don't have time to talk about all of them. But I really want to focus in on the second one. Because that's the emphasis for this series. That God wants us to function correctly in our relationship with each other. But first, let me just touch on this first relationship because let me tell you this morning, this is the most important one. I may not give it the priority of time, but I promise you it should take priority in your heart. If you get this one wrong, none of the rest will work. And he begins this chapter by saying, therefore, because of all that you've heard, because of what God's word teaches us and because of what Jesus has done, let us then, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. A living sacrifice to God. And then he says something. He says, this is your true and proper worship. <clears throat> now, I want to encourage you, because I'm going to point you to Scripture a lot, to, a lot today, to grab a Bible, if you don't have one with you, uh, to get one out of the, the pew rack there underneath you, underneath the seat, uh, and follow along with me, because I want you to see uh, what God's Word is saying to us today. So in verse 1, he says this, this is your true and proper worship. I, I like the, the, the New King James Version. It, it says, this is your reasonable act of service. In other words, this is the, the thing that makes the most sense to do. Now, to somebody that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't make sense. To somebody that doesn't have a relationship with God, to say that the most reasonable thing that you should do, the most proper thing that you should do, is offer your life as a living sacrifice to God, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But to us, it does. And the key is in what he says in that verse. He said, in view of God's mercy. See, if you don't have a right view of the mercy of God, trying to live in a right relationship with God is going to be frustrating. Because you're going to just try to live by a standard of legalism. You're going to try to measure up to, to rules and, and laws. And, and it's not going to come from a place of passion and, and love. It's going to come from a, a place of legalism and bondage. If you don't have a right perspective of the mercy of God, you're never going to function properly with the people of God. You're certainly never going to be an adequate witness to the world. So it begins with a right view. A right view of mercy. In view of what he's done, in view of how he's saved you and changed your life, <coughs> offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Then he goes on in verse 2 there, and he tells us something that a lot of people are wondering. How do I know the will of God? What's God's plan for my life? He gives us a nugget of truth right here in Romans 12.2. In Romans 12.2 it says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. <clears throat> then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect 
will? How do I know God's will for my life? There's a lot of people that are afraid to step into a walk of obedience because they don't know which direction to walk. They don't know what God's will is for your life. This verse tells us the way to discover the will of God is to test. You gotta try it. You gotta start walking in obedience. See, this is a faith walk. So if you're waiting for God to, to give you a, a clear map with exact directions, that day's not gonna come. What God doesn't give you a map. What God gives you is a compass. He points you in the right direction. He says, walk in it. And the way to discover the will of God is to walk it out, to test it. And when we begin to walk in obedience, we have the confidence in God's word that it's going to be approved, not to God. God's will is obviously approved to God. It's approved to you. It's right. And maybe you're here today and you say, I, I just want to, I want to know that I'm, I'm living right. I want to know that I'm moving in the right direction. I want to know that the things that I'm doing and the direction that I'm taking my life is the way that it's supposed to go. How do I know that? I begin to test the will of God. In light of his mercy, I surrender my whole self to him. I yield my whole life to him. And I begin to walk into obedience to the word that's been revealed. That's what Paul means when he says, Therefore, in light of what you've learned, in light of the grace that God's given you, lay your life down as a sacrifice. And as you do that, God's going to begin to make your steps clear. He's going to begin to give you confirmation in your heart to know. You might not know it 20 steps down the road, but you'll be able to look in the rearview mirror and say, God is leading me. God is directing me. I can test and approve today that I am living my life in the will of God. And I discovered it by walking in obedience to the known will of God. That's what God wants for you today. And that is the most important relationship. If you don't have a relationship with Christ today, you can forget everything else I'm going to say. Because it'll end in frustration if you try to leave here with five steps or seven keys or three principles to live a better life. Forget it. What you need is a view of the mercy of God. The mercy of God that was given to you. See, mercy is getting what we don't deserve. And so when we get a view of the mercy of God, we realize that we're sinners and that we deserve to be punished for our sin. But Jesus took our penalty. He gave us his mercy. And in light of that, 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 that incredible relationship begins to grow. A relationship with God. And we are better together with God. Because we're together with God, we can get to the next level of relationship. And that's the relationship with the body of Christ. <clears throat> Look at verse 3. We're going to go all the way down through this chapter. Guys in the back, you can just follow with us. Verse 3 says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, verse 5 says, though many... Form one body, <laughs> and each member belongs to the others. Here, there's, there's some incredible things that, that Paul says here. Number one, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, because your faith is a gift from God. The faith that you have today, it's a gift from God. In other words, if God didn't give you the gift of faith, you wouldn't have faith to put in him. That's how good he is. He gives you the faith that he asks you to put in him. And so Paul is saying, don't think too much of yourself. 
And then in verse 4 and 5, he says, not only is the, the faith that you have a gift from God, but everybody in the church has a gift. And you need to know that the gift that you have is a gift from God. That's what 1 Corinthians says. The Holy Spirit imparts gifts to men. <clears throat> so nobody should think too highly of themselves about the faith that they possess or the gift that they exercise in the church because they were all gifts from God. They were given by His grace. It means we don't have any reason to think of ourselves better than others. That's what he's talking about down in verse 10 when he says we ought to honor one another above yourselves. Now, next week is the Super Bowl. <clears throat> and We've got a, a big event planned. I was thinking about the Super Bowl this week, and if you're not a football fan, I apologize in advance that you're going to get two weeks of football analogies in the service. But I got to thinking, you know, on Sunday, they're going to, they're going to pass out two trophies. They're going to give the Vince Lombardi championship trophy to the team that wins the Super Bowl. But they're also going to give out a second trophy. They're going to give out the Pete Roselle MVP trophy. And statistically, like 55% odds, it's going to be given to a quarterback, right? It usually always is. But could you imagine... Either one of the quarterbacks in that game receiving the MVP trophy, the most valuable player trophy, and saying to his offensive lineman, I didn't need you guys. He would never say that. You don't even have to understand football that well to understand that no, no quarterback would say to his offensive line, I didn't need you to earn this. <clears throat> because teammates understand the value of working together so much that even the most valuable player trophy can't be earned alone. It can't be earned alone. It takes a team. I read something interesting this week that there's only one player in NFL history that has received the Pete Rozelle MVP trophy on a losing team. Usually it's always the winning team that has the MVP, but one time... In Super Bowl V, it was the Dallas Cowboys, and they lost. But they came back and won the next year. They lost the Super Bowl, but Chuck Howley, a defensive linebacker, won the MVP as the most valuable player on the field. He was interviewed later, and he was asked about it. And it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that this is what he said. I would have much rather won the game. Football players understand you don't go to the Super Bowl to win the Pete Roselle trophy. You want the Lombardi. And that's the way it is in the body of Christ. There's no I in team that we understand that we're not in this for our own glory, but for the good and the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom. I had one coach that used to say it this way. Team means together everyone achieves more. And the truth is, God has called each and every one of us to be a part of something that he wants to do collectively in the body of Christ. That's what Paul was trying to get the church to understand. <clears throat> he wanted them to get it. We need more people in the body of Christ like her. You remember her? Most, most Christians don't really know who her is. If I said, who is her, you would say, I don't know, where is she? Her is a character in the Old Testament. And it's not a she, it's a he. Most everybody that has any uh, 
familiarity with the scriptures knows who Moses and Aaron were. They were brothers. Moses was the leader of Israel, set them out of captivity in Egypt. Aaron was his brother. He became the first high priest of Israel. But the scripture tells us a story about a time when the nation of Israel was going out to war against the Amalekites. And as they were going out to war, Joshua was the commander of the army. And Moses told Joshua to go down to the battlefield to face the Amalekites. And I will go up onto the mountain and I will hold up my staff. That same staff that he held up and parted the Red Sea with. And the Bible says that so long as Moses held his staff up, that Joshua and the children of Israel won the war against the Amalekites. But as the battle waned on, his arms grew tired and and they began to fall. And when the staff came down, the tables were turned and the Amalekites began to defeat the Israelites. And so thinking quickly, Aaron and Hur came and grabbed the arms of Moses and they lifted them up. And the Bible says as long as his hands were in the air, they won the battle that day. (coughs) And Joshua overcame the Amalekites with the sword. Thank God for little known team players like Hur who are willing to just come and support somebody else in the ministry to get the job done. He was somebody that lifted the burden off of his leader. That reminds me of another story in Mark chapter 2. One of my, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is in Mark chapter 2. And, and it's the story of a time when Jesus goes back to his hometown and he begins to teach the people in Capernaum. And when word gets out that he's there, the Bible says everybody crowded into the house so full that No more people could get in. They were looking in the windows. They were standing outside. All the people were pressing in to see Jesus. And the Bible says there were four men who had a friend that was paralyzed. And they carried him to the meeting, hoping that Jesus would touch him and heal him of his paralysis. How many of you remember this story? And they get to the house. And what happens? They can't get in the door. They can't get in the window. They can't get in the back door. There's no way to get their friend to Jesus. And I love this story in Mark 2. It says that they went up on the roof and they began to tear a hole in the roof of the house. They ripped the roof apart until there was a hole large enough to lower their friend down to where Jesus was. Can you imagine what that must have looked like in that meeting? If I'm preaching and all of a sudden stuff just starts falling on my head and all of a sudden the light starts shining through and, and a draft blows through the room and all of a sudden you see a mat with a man laying on it being suspended by four ropes and let down right in front of me. That's what happened in this moment. And, and I love what the scripture says in verse 5. It says, when Jesus, this is Mark 2, 5, when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now we know that man had faith because nobody can get forgiveness of sins off somebody else's faith. Doesn't matter how long your mom or your dad or your grandma prayed for you. If you don't put faith in Jesus, your sins can't be forgiven. So we know this paralyzed man had had faith. But it doesn't say that Jesus saw his faith. It says he saw their faith. And there's four men on the roof that are a part of a miracle because of their willingness to carry somebody else to Jesus. 
Can I just tell you that, I mean, this guy, he looks like he had a bad lot, a bad lot in life, being paralyzed. But this man was blessed. Because he didn't just have one friend. He had four friends that were willing to bring him to Jesus. Four friends that when he was with them, he got closer to Jesus. Can we just apply this to our own life for a second and ask yourself, how many friends do I have that when I get around them, I actually get closer to Jesus? And if you can't answer that question with, with any significant number, maybe you should ask, where are my friends leading me? If they're not leading me to Jesus, where are they leading me? We should all be so blessed to have people in our lives that when we get around them, we feel closer to Jesus. And we need, that's how, that's how Paul says in Romans 12, the body of Christ ought to be with one another. Don't think too highly of yourself. You have a gift. I have a gift. They were given by grace. You have faith. I have faith. God gave us that faith. So don't consider yourself higher than you ought, but consider others and bring them into the presence of Jesus. <clears throat> In verse 9 of Romans 12, he emphasizes this when he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. <clears throat> Everybody in the body of Christ, is called to bring other people closer to Jesus. It's part of your calling. It doesn't matter how you do it, whether you stand and, and preach like I'm doing this morning, or whether you physically carry somebody like these men did in Mark chapter 2. We're called to bring people closer to Jesus. In fact, I want to show you a scripture in Ephesians where Paul writes to another church and he explains how this works. Look at Ephesians 4.16 on the screen. It says, from him, <coughs> this is talking about Jesus, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows. How does it grow? It says it grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We have to to work together to get there. As each part does its work, every joint, every ligament, every muscle, big players, little players, doesn't matter. We all work together. Can you imagine what it would be like if the Falcons or the Patriots next week <clears throat> sent 11 quarterbacks out on the field? That'd be a terrible game to watch. We need people who are willing to hold up the left hand of somebody else in the work of the ministry the way her did. We need people who are willing to be one-fifth of a miracle. Maybe you don't have the faith to, to believe God to see the miraculous signs and wonders, but could you be one-fifth of a miracle? Could you link your faith up with somebody else's and bring somebody closer to Jesus? You know, some of the greatest soul winners have never preached a message, never led somebody in a sinner's prayer, but they bring people to Jesus. And God gets a hold of their life. That's what he's calling us to do. Paul goes on in verse 6 through 8 of Romans 12, and he explains that there are many different gifts. He mentions several of them. 
And in this list, in Romans 12, I want you to know this is not an exhaustive list. Let's look at it here. In verse 6, he says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, prophesying, then (coughs) prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, I don't believe this is a complete list because everywhere in the New Testament where Paul explains the gifts, he always adds another one. In every list you find of his letters, he adds another list. And I think the Spirit had him do it that way because there are gifts that we have not even seen manifested in the church. See, I believe that there are ways of doing ministry that we haven't seen yet. I believe that. I believe there's ways of doing ministry. So look, if you're here today and maybe you're frustrated in that you've been serving God for a long time and you just don't, you don't know what your gift is or you don't know where your gift fits. Maybe the reason that you haven't found a niche to serve in is because God's put something on your heart that we don't even have. There are new ways of doing ministry. And so he says there are many gifts. The key is use your gift. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to do what somebody else is called to do. Do what God has called you to do. Seek out your gift and discover your gift by serving. <clears throat> by serving. That's how we test and approve the perfect will of God. We just serve. We get involved. You find out what is your gift. You also find out what's not your gift. And that's okay. It's okay to double back and go, that's not, that's not for me. But we discover it by serving. <laughs> one, one commentator said this. James Montgomery Boyce said, You as a Christian have a right to the gifts the other members of the body have been given. And they have a right to your gift. You cheat them if you do not use it. And you are poorer if you do not depend on them. So Paul starts out by talking about all these different gifts. There's all kinds of gifts. Prophecy and encouragement and generosity and all these, all these gifts and many more. <clears throat> but then quickly he turns to the virtue that all of us have to have. No matter what your gift is, he says this is the most important thing. The gifts, the fruit of your life flows out of the root of your life. And he does the same thing, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about all the gifts of the Spirit and how we function as a body. And then he jumps right into 1 Corinthians 13. And what is it? It's the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. And that's exactly what he does here in Romans 12. He says, we all have gifts. We all got to serve. But listen. Here's how you're really supposed to function. Here's the place we function out of as the body of Christ. Verse 9, look at it with me. Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I'm talking about how we're supposed to function in relationship with the body of Christ. And he tells us right here in verse 9, this is, this is key. There's two, there's two things about Christian love that Paul emphasizes right here. Number one, in this verse he says it's genuine. And the second thing is it's discriminating. Yes, I said discriminating. That, that word has, 
has been so stained and rightfully so in our culture that that to say that discrimination is a reflection of the love of God probably doesn't sit well with any of our ears when we first consider it. But hear what he's saying. He said, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. That word sincere comes from two Greek words, sign and seer. And what it means is without wax. That's, that's what the word sincere means, without wax. Now let me explain that. In biblical times, there was a practice that the people would use that they would take wax to fill in the cracks in pottery. If you had some less quality pottery and it, and it was it had imperfections in it, they would add wax to smooth it out so that it looked more appealing and they could sell it for a profit. And so if someone had a high quality piece of ware and they wanted to sell that and it was good stuff and, and it, was, it was the real deal, they didn't put any wax in it, they would put a seal on the bottom of it that said sincere. It said without wax. And that's what Paul is saying our love is supposed to be like. <laughs> it's supposed to be sincere. It's not... It's not hiding its true nature. It's not masking it hypocritically. It's being sincere. It's being authentic. The Greek understanding of that same word meant without a mask. Without hypocrisy. That's what the word hypocrite meant in the Greek. To wear a mask. It was a term they used in theater. When the actors would role play, they would put on a mask and pretend to be somebody they were not. They were being a hypocrite. And what this word means, your love must be sincere. It means that it should be unhypocritical. That you don't act one way at one place and then come into church and act a different way. I'm talking about how God wants us to have relationship with the body of Christ. To get there, we have to be in right relationship with God. But love must be sincere for one another. And it has to also be discriminating. Paul says it must be sincere. And no sooner does he say what love ought to be, the next word he says in verse 9 is hate. Hate. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And we punctuate it a little bit different in our Bible, but really the essence of the statement is, Love must be sincere by hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. I want to tell you this morning, it's unbiblical that we should just love everything and love everybody. It's unbiblical. If we're going to love like Christ, we've got to love what God loves. And God does not love everything. His love is discriminating. It hates evil. It clings to what is good. We we won't turn there for time's sake, but Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19 tells us seven things the Lord hates. He hates them. Amos chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that God said, I hate your religious feasts. I hate them. I cannot stand your assemblies. Why was he saying that to the people? Because they were doing it insincerely. They were doing it hypocritically. They were going through the motions. They were showing up. They were putting on a mask of religiosity. And God said, I hate that. That's not sincere. That's not my love. 
And in Romans 12, 9, when Paul says love must be sincere, that word love is the word agape. It's a God kind of love. So if we're going to do this authentically, we've got to do it the way God does it. We've got to cling to what is good. And we've got to flee from what is evil. So Paul introduces love to them and says, this is, this is the foundational thing if we're going to have right relationship. <coughs> We gotta love sincerely. And then he springboards from there. In, in the next part of the chapter. Into a description of how we function in this love. What does it look like to, to love each other sincerely? In verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in love. Now that love is a different word translated as love. That word is phileo. It means brotherly love. So what he's saying is be devoted to one another. Love each other as if you were close family. That's what he's saying. Love each other as if you're close family. There's nine, <laughs> nine statements that he says, this is what love looks like. And I wish I had time to, to preach all nine of them this, this morning. But let me just tell you what they are. You can go back and study these on your own. But he says in verse 10, be devoted to one another. <coughs> Then he says, honor one another. In other words, don't be self-centered. Don't be jealous of each other. And then in verse 11, he gives the next three. All, all of these are functions of love in the church. This is how we function together. He says, be, uh, verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never lack in zeal. That just means we're not, we're not lazy with the love of God. Colossians 3 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart. Do it as unto the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Don't lack zeal. Then he says, keep your spiritual fervor. That means stay at boiling point. Don't let your spiritual life cool off. The way that we function in love as the body of Christ is to stay at boiling point. Keep your fervor. And then he says, serving the Lord. <clears throat> Can I just tell you practically the way to love God is to serve God. To not offer lip service. That's what they were doing in Amos when God says, I hate that kind of worship. Worship that is empty. Worship that just shows up and sings on Sunday and means nothing from the heart. Can't stand it. But Paul says this is the way that we relate to one another. We serve the Lord. <clears throat> Jesus asked the question in Luke. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? That's not a God kind of love. Serve the Lord. Then he goes on, the next three are also in one verse. Verse 12 says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Here's the way we function as the body of Christ. On your worst day, on your worst week, when you've gotten the worst news, still, we can come into this house and be joyful in hope. I'm not talking about with insincerity. I'm not talking about putting on a hypocritical mask. I'm talking about digging deeper than the circumstance that you carried in here and looking to hope. <clears throat> to hope. It doesn't say be joyful about the situation you're facing. It doesn't say be joyful about your circumstances. It says be joyful in hope. There's something that happens. And, and we tried to lean into that at the very beginning of this service. 
As we sang, in the middle of the storm, I'm holding on to you. There's something that happens when we come together as the body of Christ. And we lift our eyes to the cross. That's why we hung it as high as we could. When we lift our eyes to the cross, all of a sudden we have hope. It's in the cross. It's in redemption. It's in the fact that Jesus is coming again for his bride, the church. And on your worst day on the earth, that's all the hell you'll ever experience. You understand, this is as bad as it gets for the people of God. For some, this is, this is their heaven. I pity them. Heaven's going to be glorious. I'll never have to deal with my sin or your sin. My dysfunction or your dysfunction. And so there's always hope that we have. That we're patient in affliction. That, that was Paul acknowledging the fact that, you know what? Bad things do happen. That we don't just come and always have to have a hallelujah meeting and, and just whip ourselves up into some emotional ecstasy to feel like we've had church. The Bible says one of the things we do together as the body of Christ is we mourn together. We sorrow together. We carry each other's burdens together. And how do we do, how do we handle those moments as a church patiently? We, in other words, we endure them. We don't throw our hands in the air and quit on God. We endure them patiently, together. And then he says there, at the latter part of verse 12, we're faithful in prayer. Faithful in prayer. That means literally just to continue praying. All of us pray at some point. We've all prayed. At some point, we call on God. That's not, that's not the emphasis here. What he's saying is continue to pray. Pray all the time. Continue to seek God together. Jesus didn't say my house should be called a house of preaching. He didn't say it should be called a house of singing. He didn't say it should be called a house of coffee and fellowship and snacks. He said my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So Paul says here's the way that we do this together. To get there, we pray together. We pray. And then in verse 13... He says, share with the Lord's people, practicing hospitality. Share with the Lord's people, practicing hospitality. That's not just feed the homeless or do good deeds and give in the offering. When he says practice hospitality, he's talking about caring for one another, lifting each other's burdens. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, In verse 26, if one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So here in Romans 12, Paul tells us how to, how to together. He said, this is how you do it. This is how we together. We together with God first and foremost. And and because of all he's done for us, it starts a ripple effect that we have to start with God. And when we start with God together, we become close with the body of Christ. And when we figure out how to do koinonia, godly fellowship, Christian community together, all of a sudden now we're able to have a right relationship with unbelievers. And that's where he takes the rest of the chapter. 
He turns a corner. He starts talking about the relationship with God. And then he talks about the relationship with the family of God. And then he talks about our relationship with a lost world. Verse 14 through 21 communicates to us how you're supposed to be a Christian in an ungodly world. It's very practical. I won't take time to unpack the scriptures, but I just want to look at a couple of them and read them out loud. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Verse 19 says, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How are we supposed to live an authentic Christian life amongst unbelievers? In a word, authentic. Authentically. You know, the world really doesn't care what denomination we're a part of. The world could really care less about your theology, about the rapture, or about the second coming of the Lord, or the millennial reign. They don't care about that. What they are watching is, are you honest? Are you a person that, that can be trusted? Do you pay your debts? Are you a person of integrity? That's what the world is watching for. You can't connect with lost people by telling them what they should believe. You have to show them. You have to let your life be your witness. Some believers just want to pass out tracts and tell the world what to read. The Bible tells us if our walk is right, they'll watch our witness. They'll watch our tracks. Not the tracks that we hand them, but the tracks we leave. They'll watch the tracks that we leave. That's what they're looking for. Somebody that has something authentic. How do we learn that? How do we learn how to do it? Well, we never get to that level of influence until we've practiced it in community. We learn how to do it in the body of Christ. To get there, we have to work together. And how do we do that? We're dysfunctional on our own. We don't need to mess up the equation with a lost world. How do we get together? Well, to get there, we have to be in right relationship with God. And that begins in view of His mercy and His grace. Next Sunday, as we've mentioned a couple times in this service, we're going to be doing an outreach. It's, it's football Sunday. It's, it's really an, an, become an American holiday. In fact, I read some statistics that back up that claim for maybe those of you that don't care about football. There's 116 million viewers that'll watch the game. It's like a third of America. 116 million. I also discovered interestingly that This week, in preparation for the big game next Sunday, 125 million chicken wings will be sold. I know you're getting ready for lunch. 
This week, in preparation for the Super Bowl, 71 million pounds of avocados will be sold for guacamole. That's a lot of guacamole. There was one store that actually tracked all of their inventory, and they noticed that in the week leading up to the Super Bowl, they had a 20% rise in the sale of antacids. People pulling for their team. I say all that to say this. Sunday's a big day. But for us, it's an opportunity. We just want to leverage that day for the glory of God. I just want to challenge you today in thinking, can I be an authentic witness for Christ to an unbelieving world? Can I be an authentic witness for Christ to an unbelieving world? That's really what we want to do next Sunday. We just want to have the opportunity to invite people to church that maybe wouldn't typically come and to see what Christian community looks like. But if we're going to get there, to get there, we have to figure it out amongst ourselves. We have to lean into relationships. We have to love one another. We have to carry each other's burdens. We have to do more than look at the back of each other's head on a Sunday morning. We've got to look each other in the eye and in the soul and strengthen one another. But to get there, we've got to get together with Christ. He is our commonality. We're not a family because we all like the same things. We're a family because we've been adopted by the King of Kings. We're sons and daughters of God. And if you're here today and, and you're not together with Christ, I want to invite you to, to give your heart to Him, to give your life to Him, to get there, because you're better to get there. I can promise you, He'll begin to change your life. He'll begin to work in you in a supernatural way. It won't be instantaneous, but it'll be miraculous. It will be miraculous. He will change your heart. He will change your life. And you will look in the review mirror of your life in days to come. And you'll say, I can test and approve the will of God. Because I surrendered everything to Him. A living sacrifice in view of His mercy. In view of His grace. I gave my life to Him. And I can test and I can approve that this is good. I want to pray for you. Bow your head with me all over this room. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is your opportunity to just, from your heart, to pray a prayer and say, God, I need your forgiveness. You can pray it in your own words. It's not complicated. God wants to hear from you more than anything else. More than you saying something that I would lead you in saying. I just want, I want to invite you to be honest with God in this moment. If you don't have a relationship with God, there's one thing that keeps you from that. It's called sin. It's the same thing that keeps all of us from having a relationship with God. Sin has built up a barrier wall between us and our maker. And that's why God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. And the Bible says that at the cross, the debt of sin was canceled over your life. If you'll receive it. You can be debt free from sin if you receive his grace. So to believe this gospel, to view God's mercy, is to come to the place right now in your heart.
where you recognize there's nothing I could ever do to pay the price for my own sin. If I spend from now till the rest of my days living flawlessly and perfect, I still have to give an account for everything I've done up to this moment. I need mercy. To view God's mercy is to gaze upon Jesus and put your faith in what he did for you at the cross. He died for you. And more than that, three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death forever. And the hope that every child of God has here today, that can be yours today, is that one day we'll be with him. We'll see him face to face. There's confidence that can be yours today. That you are together with God. Father, I pray for the individuals who might be sensing your spirit right now, calling them, inviting them to come, to come, to have a relationship with you, to know you, to to walk with you in intimacy and in fellowship. God, today, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.